From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good afternoon. Welcome to Washington Watch, your source for news and analysis on policy, politics, and culture from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Tony Perkins, and Washington Watch starts now. Well, after weeks of requesting a meeting with President Biden, House Speaker Mike Johnson will head to the White House tomorrow, but it won't be a one-on-one meeting like he requested. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, along with House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, will be in attendance. Now, this is significant because the makeup of the meeting is important, as the other three congressional leaders are pushing for more funding to Ukraine, even as our own government is about to run out of funding. We're going to talk with Congressman Ron Estes, a member of the House Budget Committee and House Ways and Means Committee, in just a moment. And in another act of diplomatic aggression, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Friday stated that Israel's civilian housing settlements in the so-called West Bank violate international law. It's been long-standing U.S. policy under Republican and Democratic administrations alike that new settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. Uh, They're also inconsistent with international law. Former U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman said, quote, for Blinken to announce this in the middle of a war is unconscionable. Ambassador Friedman joins us later. And speaking of Israel, the U.N. Watch held an international summit in Geneva today entitled A Future Beyond UNRWA, which is the corrupt U.N. Relief and Works Agency operating in Gaza that was linked to the October 7th attack on Israel. UNRWA is a corrupt anti-Semitic terror complicit agency, and everybody needs to say that, and everybody here at the United Nations, including at the UN Human Rights Council and every other agency, need to recognize it. It radicalizes Palestinian children uh, with anti-Semitic hate. It's a child soldier factory. That was New Jersey Congressman Chris Smith today at the summit in Geneva. He joins us later here on Washington Watch. Last week's tragic murder of nursing student Lakin Riley by Jose Antonio Ibrera, an illegal immigrant from Venezuela, who was, by the way, detained at the border, then released into the United States, sets the stage for a defining confrontation in Washington this week. I'm willing to fund the government as long as our border is secure. The first job of the government is to secure the border. Any business that provides a service, if they don't give you the service, do you give them money? The answer is no. That was Florida Congressman Byron Donalds yesterday on Meet the Press. We're going to talk about that later here on Washington Watch. From the halls of power to the front lines of cultural battles, Washington Watch is your platform for informed discussion and meaningful dialogue, all from a biblical perspective, so that you can stand up, speak up, and stay engaged. So let's navigate these important issues together. Well, as I mentioned, Friday's funding deadline for multiple government agency is, uh, well, it's approaching. Leaders from both chambers of Congress will meet with President Biden tomorrow at the White House after negotiations throughout the weekend failed to net an agreement. According to House Speaker Mike Johnson, much of the delay can be attributed to new spending demands from Democrats. Now, this comes at a time when the Biden administration has asked for additional emergency spending that includes more than $60 billion for war aid to Ukraine. And that apparently is what he's going to be pressing the House Speaker for tomorrow. Now, here's the question. Why should we even be talking about funding Ukraine 
when funding for our own government is in question. Joining me now to discuss this is Congressman Ron Estes. He serves on the House Committee on Ways and Means and the House Budget Committee. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Kansas. Congressman Estes, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. So when Congress returns this week, the appropriations bills uh, will be top priority. I think you've uh, you've made seven, I think seven of the 12 through the process. Um, what do you expect is going to happen this week? Yeah, yeah seven, seven of the 12 have passed through the House. Unfortunately, nothing has been passed into law uh, through the House and the Senate. And so uh, at the end of this week, uh, four of the 12 appropriations bills expire uh, based on the continuing resolution that's set out there. And so what, what's really uh, appalling to me and, and concerning as we look at it is the, the administration and the Senate doesn't want to focus on how do we keep America running forward and not busting the debt. I mean, we're already seeing we're $34 trillion in debt. Uh, that's a sharp run up and it's uh, growing by about $2 trillion a year uh, through that process. And, and we've got to do some things differently. We've got to focus on how do we rein in the spending. Uh, we're, we're receiving more in tax revenue that we've been receiving. And unfortunately, instead, they're trying to play games. And we see the, the Senate would not pass a bill to uh, protect our southern border. Instead, they want to fund money uh, through special supplemental instead of appropriate, finishing appropriations uh, to fund our own government and to fund our southern border. Uh, Congressman, that's a good point. When we look at what happened last week in Athens, Georgia, where nursing student Lakin Riley was murdered by an illegal, illegal immigrant from Venezuela, I mean, I would think that we're going to see a defining moment in Washington this week with this confrontation between uh, conservatives saying it's time to secure our border and the administration pushing for more government funding. It, it really is. And, and the sad part is we don't need additional laws. I mean, the, the president has the laws that he can enforce. I mean, President Biden has taken 60 different steps when he first came into office to undo what was being done successfully during the Trump administration. So the laws are on the books, work uh, overwhelmingly to help uh, support things, things like the Remain in Mexico policy, which would solve 70 to 80 percent of our problem. Uh, according to uh, our conversations with the Border Patrol agents. Uh, if, if the Biden administration would just enforce the laws to protect the country, the laws that are on the books would help actually help America. I mean, you wouldn't see these, these terrible deaths, uh, these atrocities and these other crimes being committed by the illegal aliens that have been brought into the country and allowed to stay here and then released to roam throughout the countryside. Right. And of course, that's not even uh, bringing up the issue of the, the drugs, fentanyl that's coming across the border and the devastating effect that that has had. So tomorrow, as the congressional leaders, the House Speaker, the minority leader and the Senate leadership meets with the president, of course, the president's going to be pushing for the ninety five billion dollar aid package, primarily going to Ukraine. Um, what do you see as the outcome here? Do you think that the president is going to throw in a few tidbits to address the border? As you pointed out, he doesn't need more laws. He can do it. Will he announce tomorrow you think that he's going to do some 
uh, you know, kind of window dressing at the border to try to force Republicans to uh, to fund government? I, I think he will probably try that, uh, if not uh, tomorrow, uh, then uh, in the next few weeks. It, it's an election year, so uh, he's very uh, astute to that in terms of focusing on uh, how he can get himself reelected. So I, I don't doubt at all that he will say something that uh, sounds like he's fixing the border when in reality he's caused the problem. And the real focus right now needs to be on how do we fund the government? How do we do it in a sustainable way that, that moves forward? Unfortunately, Senate leadership, you know, two of the four congressional leaders that will be there have already passed a bill where uh, they want to increase uh, funding uh, supplemental outside the United States and not focusing on, on uh, the U.S. Uh, budget and protecting our country. And instead, you'll see uh, that the pressure being put on Speaker Johnson. Uh, you know, we, we all need to support him and, and standing firm for the issues that are important for the United States. So with these appropriations bills, as you said, the House has moved seven of the 12. Uh, none have gone all the way through the process. The clock is ticking. What do you think is going to be the likely outcome? I mean, the options are, you know, somehow the Senate goes to work, which I haven't done in a while, so I doubt that's going to happen. Um, there's going to be another continuing resolution funding government. I doubt that's going to happen because if you do a CR through the end of the year, it triggers budget cuts, not big, but about a 1% reduction. The other option then is an omnibus. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, it's uh, you're right. Those those are kind of the three options to look at is year-long CR, which has a, a, a relatively modest 1% cut in spending. Uh, or shutting the government down, which, uh, it, although it, it may it, it may address some concerns that we have, it doesn't actually solve the problems, and so we've got to focus on how do we do the appropriations. I, I think we're we're now within our 72-hour window, which when when uh, we communicated when the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives, that we wanted to have 72 hours to read the bills before we were expecting people to vote on them. Uh, I would not be surprised if uh, if a uh, short-term continuing resolution is what comes out of uh, the discussions this week uh, because it seems like the, the president and the Senate leadership's not stepping up to, uh, to help resolve this issue, to help it move forward. Also, Congressman asked if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a part of those early agreements by Republicans was no more omnibus. Uh, these uh, conglomeration of all these bills put together where it's irresponsible spending, which has brought us to this point of $34 trillion in in debt, I would think that that would have to be a, a non-starter with most Republicans. It, it really is problematic because, you know, the, the, the normal bad habit that's been going on for the last 20-plus years is that uh, it, the appropriations would not be finalized by September 30th when they should be done by and and therefore we have a continuing resolution usually it backed up to Christmas and the holiday season in in which case the pressure point became so so great and then the omnibus was brought up typically omnibuses are big bloated spending packages people know the political games they can play so they actually say that I'm not going to support the omnibus that in, if unless they get their pet project in, in the project. So you end up seeing uh, a lot more spending and it, it's wasteful. And, and that's really what's led us to this point where, where we're now at, at $34 trillion that 
going to have to be paid back by our kids and grandkids and great grandkids. Right. That's just inappropriate for us to be doing. So fi final question for you, Congressman uh, Estes. We should be right now working on next year's appropriations bills. I mean, that should be the focus. We're still working on funding the current year that we're in. Do you think that we're going to get back to the regular order of funding the government the way it is supposed to be done? Is that going to happen when we get beyond this current impasse? Yeah, it's, it's hard to change these bad habits, uh, this uh, muscle memory uh, that exists in Washington, because it's been, like I said, it's been since the, the 1990s, uh, since the last time all 12 appropriations bills were done by the end of the, uh, the calendar year, by September 30th, in order to start the new fiscal year. And, and so uh, it's going to take a, a lot of leaning in to make that happen. Uh, we're already having conversations in the budget committee about uh, preparing our congressional budget to start that appropriations for 2025. Uh, it's going to take a lot of uh, a lot of leaning in, a lot of hard work to actually help change this and turn this boat around, because we can't continue doing the same thing that we're doing. Yeah, but we we got to have men and women like you that are willing to keep fighting to get that done. Because you're absolutely right; it's not going to happen on its own. It's it, it's going to require a concerted effort, and quite frankly, I think you're going to need some reinforcements because the uh, the margins are pretty thin there among Republicans. Congressman Estes, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right, great. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, don't go away. On the other side of the break, we're going to be joined by former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, is going to join us to talk about the best path forward for Israel once Hamas is defeated. Stay tuned. We're back after this. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be giving guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. 
Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this Monday. The divide between the U.S. and our strategic ally, Israel, seems to be widening under the Biden administration. On Friday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken stated that Israel's civilian housing settlements in the so-called West Bank violate international law. It's been long-standing U.S. policy under Republican and Democratic administrations alike that new settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. Uh, they're also inconsistent with international law. Now, this totally, totally reverses the policy of the Trump administration and uh, that of former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, the question is, will Blinken announce next that they're going to move the embassy from Jerusalem? Joining me now to discuss this, David Friedman, who served as the U.S. ambassador to Israel during the Trump administration, where he was a part of the group responsible for the Abraham Accords and moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. He is the founder of the Friedman Center for Peace Through Strength and the author of the book Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. Ambassador Friedman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Always good to be with you. So, Ambassador, uh, your response to this Friday announcement? Well, you know, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, the, first of all, what, what Secretary Blinken said is absolutely not true uh, in two respects. First of all, he said, well, you know, it's no big deal. Prior administrations have always said that the Jewish settlement in biblical Israel is inconsistent with international law. It's not true. It's not true at all. They're the first ones to say that. Now, there have been administrations in the past, Republican and Democrat, who said, you know, they're not helpful, you know, slow it down, maybe make some, I mean, things that are political in nature. But to say that they're illegal, okay, this is taking this to a whole other level. What he's saying is that the Jewish people have no right to live in their biblical homeland, whether it's in, in Bethlehem, in Shiloh, in Bethel, you know, in, uh, in Hebron, I mean, all the most significant biblical sites uh, the places where God uh, promised uh, that, that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this would be their land. All those places are now, uh, as, as according to Secretary Blinken, you know, Judenrein, as uh, Hitler used to say, devoid of Jews. So it really is just a gut punch, you know, to, to those who, you know, take a theological view uh, to biblical Israel. You know, that, that's number one. Number two, the idea that somehow, you know, by, by, uh, by taking this position, you're going to advance the cause of peace. Um, just the opposite. You know, you, you pointed out our work on the Abraham Accords. Why were the Abraham Accords achieved? For, for two reasons. We were tough on Iran, right? And we were 
uh, Israel's best friend. We supported Israel and we and we imposed massive sanctions on Iran. That's the formula that caused all these countries in the Gulf to say, you know what? The United States is with us with regard to a common enemy. And Israel uh, has become under the Trump administration a far more attractive and essential partner in our common goals. What Biden's done is he's reversed everything. He's taken it in the opposite direction. He's empowered Iran. He's uh, he doesn't enforce sanctions on Iran. Iran, when we left office, was a poor country. Now Iran is a very wealthy country, spending all their money, you know, to uh, fund the line activity around the Middle East. Um, and 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 Biden's been nothing but difficult with Israel on on some of the most important issues. He's trying to force Israel into this two-state solution, which nobody in Israel wants, which nobody with half a brain right. should want, you know, where well, it's, you know, logically and, and politically. Well, I mean, first off, I want to go back to what you said about, I, I like the term biblical Israel. People need to know when you hear this term West Bank, we're talking about everything we read about in the Bible, as you said, Hebron. Uh, Shiloh, where the temple was for 369, or the tabernacle for 369 years. I mean, these are at the heart of biblical Israel. So that, that's the that's the land we're talking about. But secondly, this two-state solution, which is already being talked about as the way forward, isn't that what we essentially had with Gaza? They were self-governing, and all they did was focus on how they could attack Israel. Look, Gaza was the, the great experiment if you will, to see if a two-state solution would work. Um, Israel left completely. They abandoned Gaza. There's not one single Israeli, not one single Jew living in Gaza. Not only that, but Gaza was then, you know, amplified with lots of funding, you know, money to UNRWA, money to the PA, you know, money money to through all kinds of sources from Qatar to help, you know, Gaza become a prosperous place. And Hamas took all this money and put it into terror tunnels and bombs and rockets. And remember, Hamas was elected by the people of Gaza. They rejected the PA. They they supported uh, Hamas. And by the way, 80% of the Palestinians in the West Bank or in Judea and Samaria, as I refer to it, more than 80% um, applaud the, the attacks of October 7th by Hamas against innocent Israelis. So this idea that somehow you're going to take um, any portion of this land and, and restore it to control um, by Palestinians is just going to, you know, it's going to replicate all the things that we're trying to uh, get away from October 7th. What Biden and Blinken are saying is, well, we're, we, we're, we know Hamas has to go. We want to eliminate terror, but we want to put the PA in control. But the PA is just hostility by another name. The PA has a pension system. I know you know this, but for your listeners, the PA has a pension system where they award funds to terrorists, and, and they award it on a sliding scale based upon the severity of the terrorist attack. So the more Jews you kill or wound or maim, okay, the more money you get as a pension. And this goes on to this day. They are continuing to pay terrorists. Now, how could this organization possibly be a partner for peace when they provide from their funds, which are desperately needed for other purposes, when they provide their funds to terrorists to reward them based upon the severity of their crime? And it should be noted that they have yet to denounce the October 7th attacks on Israel. They have yet to denounce that. They have yet to uh, accept the notion of living side by side with the Jewish state. And of course, again, I know you know this, but, you know, 72 um, percent of mandatory Palestine was, was given in 1947 to Jordan, whose population is a majority of which are Palestinians. So any Palestinian state 
would be a third or a fourth. You know, Gaza and Judea and Samaria would be the third and the fourth Palestinian states over what was already created. Uh, Israel was only left with 28% of the land that was earmarked for the Jewish people back in the 1940s. So, um, look, this is, um, this is theologically untenable. This is politically untenable. Right. So from a security perspective, this is going to create another terror state and another October 7th. It's just a terrible idea on many fronts. It, it, it would not even be kicking the can down the road because we know exactly what's going to happen with this setup. They regroup and they attack again. Ambassador Friedman, we're out of time, but it's always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, and God bless you. That is Ambassador David Friedman, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel. All right, don't go away. We're going to be going to Geneva next, where Congressman Chris Smith joins us. Stay, stay with us. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this Monday. All right, beginning today in Geneva, the organization UN Watch is hosting the first international summit for a future beyond UNRWA. Now, that's the United Nations Relief and Work Agency. That's the humanitarian arm of the UN in Gaza. So they're looking at what does the world look like beyond UNRWA? Well, the problem here with UNRWA is that they maintain deep and widespread ties with Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Just last month, Israeli intelligence revealed that at least 12 employees of UNRWA directly participated in the October 7th terrorist attack on Israel, and more were indirectly involved. Now, these reports did make headlines, but observers of UNRWA have known for years 
that the UN agency existed as a tool to promote anti-Semitic propaganda. In fact, I've seen this myself as I've been in Israel. Well, joining me now from Geneva at the summit is Congressman Chris Smith. He is a senior member on the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and co-chair of the House Task Force for Com Combating Anti-Semitism. He represents the 4th Congressional District of New Jersey. Congressman Smith, good to see you there in Geneva. Oh, thank you very much, Tony. It was a very, very good conference. So tell us about the summit and uh, what's going on there in Geneva. Okay, so the summit took place within yards of where uh, the Secretary General of the UN and all of the top leadership were meeting at the UN Human Rights Council, uh, which unfortunately has been rife with hypocrisy and one-sided focusing on Israel to the, to the exclusion of places like China and Sudan, Tehran, uh, uh, you name the offender, uh, Israel gets all the focus. It's just ridiculous. But we were talking about what do we do, as you uh, said, uh, now that UNRWA um, has shown to the world its colors, it has trained up one terrorist after another in their schools. Uh, they teach anti-Semitism to very, very young kids. Uh, and we wonder why, when they're 12 or 13, they're carrying AK-47s because they've been they've been told repeatedly that to kill Jews is a good thing. Uh, so they they have spawned this this cycle of hate, and that's why there were so many people willing uh, to engage in it. And it, it might even be more than just 12 that were directly involved uh, as part of Hamas. Uh, but again, the support for slaughtering Jewish women, men, and children uh, starts right in the very beginning, and we pay for it. Right. We are the biggest donor by far. Trump, to his credit, ended all funding for UNRWA when he was president. In came Joe Biden, and he's given him over a billion dollars, U.S. tax dollars, uh, and without any conditionality. And so it's very, very troubling uh, to see uh, what happened on October 7th and thereafter. And again, I offered, Tony, an amendment 20 years ago, similar to the, the bill that I just got passed in the Foreign Affairs Committee, 20 years ago, saying, we've got to shift our funding. If we're going to help uh, refugees or internally displaced persons, uh, you can't have all of this anti-Semitic hate uh, being imposed upon these little children who then grow up to be killers. You just can't do it. Yeah, and, uh, and my amendment passed the House never got even a look over on the Senate side. I mean, I've seen so, this myself. Uh, we've got, yes, I know that. We've got uh, UNRWA is radicalizing these children, as you point out. It is okay. with our tax dollars. I mean, we're at a point where we're having this debate over budgeting uh, in, in the Congress. Is there a chance that we could see UNRWA defunded? Oh, a great chance. I mean, my, my bill uh, passed 30 to 19 in the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Uh, hopefully it'll be on the floor very, very shortly. And the Senate, to their credit, um, included uh, in, a, in an appropriations bill, whether or not that bill proceeds forward in the House is another question, we don't know. But they completely uh, defund UNRWA as well. Now in mine, I put a caveat that said, nothing in this act precludes providing humanitarian assistance, but it would require that A, does not go to UNRWA, and that every dollar uh, goes to a group or organization that's been vetted, that they're not 
promoting terrorism or anti-Semitism uh, so that we get, you know, true humanitarian help uh, to people who are at risk of starvation. Uh, Chris, we're going to continue to track that issue, but you also, we only have about a minute left, you also in Geneva have been speaking to the issue of the World Health Organization. You've spoken out about yes. this pandemic accord that they're pushing. Tell us about that very quickly. Sure. The World Health Organization, and I just left the WHO headquarters here in Geneva, met with delegates there. Uh, they're pushing a proposed treaty, a pandemic treaty, that would bind the United States, would give an undetermined amount of, or impose an undetermined amount of money upon the U.S. taxpayer to fund a treaty whereby a great deal of power would be vested in uh, U.N. bureaucrats, including uh, Tedros, who is the man who China put in as the Director General of the WHO. And Tedros, that I've known him for decades, uh, you know, he misled the entire world uh, about COVID. Uh, and he's still in that job. And, and, and But there's other things embedded in this, this treaty proposal. It's not done. They want to have it done by the end of May. Who knows if that'll happen? I hope it doesn't. Uh, but they have other things in, like um, uh, um, essential medicines have to be provided, uh, uh, universal health care. What does that have to do with mitigating uh, the effects of the next pandemic right. if we have one? Uh, so it's, and, and they define... WHO, World Health Organization, essential medicines as abortion. Including abortion? I mean, are you kidding me? Killing babies is essential health care and medicines? Right. I don't think so. Well, Congressman Chris Smith, we hope to catch up with you back in Washington when you return from Geneva. Thank you for being on top of this, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tony. Appreciate it. All right, folks, stick with us. We're coming back on the other side of this with more Washington Watch. Don't go away. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. 
Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us. By the way, uh, the issues of both UNRWA and WHO are going to be front and center in the budget battles that are going to be taking place on Capitol Hill this week and uh, probably into next week. So if you would like to lean in on this and help us defund the World Health Organization, the United States should not be in this. You know, remember, President Trump pulled us out. We need to cut the funding. No reason we should be funding them. Text WHO to 67742. That's WHO, who, to 67742. You'll get a link. You can follow through and sign that petition. Our word for today comes from Leviticus chapter 1. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So the Old Testament system of sacrifice was a temporary appeasement for sins that had been committed. The blood of animals was never intended to redeem man. It could only make temporary atonement. Jesus redeemed us once and for all on the cross. His blood covered sins, past, present, and future, for those who accept him as Lord and Savior. To find out more about our journey through the Bible, text the word Bible to 67742. That's the word Bible to 67742. As Congress works on these spending agreements to fund the federal government, the brutal murder of a college student, a nursing student, Lake and Riley in Georgia provides a stark reminder of the crisis at our southern border, right as funding for the Department of Homeland Security is under consideration. Earlier this month, a possible border security agreement was scuttled once details emerged of how little it would actually do to address the crisis at the border. Now here's a question, could recent headlines finally, finally spur this administration to address this disaster of their own making? Joining me to talk about this, Todd Benson, author of the recent book, Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. A former journalist of 23 years, he currently serves as a senior national security fellow for the Center for Immigration Studies. Todd, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to be here. Thank you. 
So, Todd, you've been to the border many times and you've seen the chaos caused by this crisis. Does this horrifying murder of Lake and Riley in Georgia by an illegal immigrant from Venezuela, does that surprise you? Not at all. We have many hundreds of cases like this uh, in the last few years. This is not the, uh, some kind of an exception to the rule. It's more uh, like a very gigantic uh, sweeping exception uh, to, to the rule. Uh, again, you know, I'll say we don't know the full details of this case. It's still under investigation. Everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But I, what, what we do need to keep in mind is that the mass migration crisis at the southern border is the ultimate stranger danger. Uh, it is virtually impossible to verify criminal histories of even a tiny fraction of uh, of all of the millions of people that have cro crossed in over that border. Uh, and that's from countries other than Mexico and Central America, I mean, from throughout the, the world, uh, like right. Iran, Syria, yeah. And and under the Biden administration, you're seeing it was pr prior to the Biden administration, it was primarily countries, you know, in Mexico, uh, you know, Honduras, some of those countries were coming across. Now it's the entire world coming across the southern border. It really is. I mean, we have the greatest percentages in, in American history coming over that border from 170 countries other than, than Mexico and Central America. Right now, in San Diego, far more Chinese are crossing than Mexicans. Uh, we've had 45,000 Chinese cross that southern border in the last 36 months. Uh, 350 uh, people from Muslim-majority countries who are on the FBI's terrorism watch list. Greatest number ever recorded. Uh, people coming from every nation on the continent of Africa, including places where there are, you know, tribal, you know, conflicts with atrocities and warlords and you know, who knows who's coming over that border? They just say, my name is Mickey Mouse, and we let him in. Let, let me go back to something you said, Todd, because I think it's important. You know, we don't know who's coming in. We don't know their criminal history. And we're not saying that everybody comes across the border is violent. Now, they're, they're criminals because they're illegally coming into the country. So technically, that makes them a criminal because they violated the law and coming into the country. Of course, they're caught, they're released and set free. But if you think about it, I mean, we're talking millions, two million a year uh, that are coming across the border. They come in, you know, don't know if they're going to have a place to stay, don't know if they're going to have a job. We, we don't know what, how they're going to provide for themselves. Isn't that essentially creating a potential problem where we could see violence, robbery, uh, theft in, in things when people are simply trying to survive? Yes. Ask the mayors and the police chiefs of New York, Boston, Denver, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and the list goes on uh, what's going on. They all are logging uh, horrific crimes, lots of new kinds of crime, uh, attacks on police in New York, attacks on just completely innocent uh, you know, classmates, uh, people who... Uh, have just been slashed to death on the beach in Florida. Uh, 
you know, uh, civil, uh, you know, service workers, uh, you know, tied to the bed and raped and really lots of far too many crimes that should not have ever happened because those people right. should have been here. Right. That's the, that's the, that's the key should not have happened. These, these were tragedies that could have been avoided. And, and I was incensed by some who said, you know, this is a reminder that young women should not uh, run alone, uh, that we should not have women uh, athletes out running by themselves. Excuse me, I think what we should, this should be a reminder is that we shouldn't allow people across our border illegally. I mean, when you look at the, in fact, I just want you, Todd, to walk us through this process, because this is, this guy, if, the suspect, to, to be clear, he's a suspect in the murder of Lake and Riley, one of millions of illegal, illegal aliens that have come across the border by the Biden administration. They've been detained, then released into the country. And here he ended up in a sanctuary city, a city that says, oh, we're not going to work with ICE to enforce the law here. They're free to roam. I mean, walk us through this process and how this happens. Somebody just comes in, they, they get detained for a few moments, and then they're sent free into the country. Right. You cross the border, the border patrol, you turn yourself uh, compliantly into a border to a border patrol agent. They take you to a big soft-sided facility. Uh, you tell them what your name is. They type it in. You give them your fingerprints. They do database checks. Uh, if you've never been in the country before, you'll probably show up clean. And then within a day, you are stamped for release on your own recognizance, and you're put on a bus or a plane uh, to the city of your choice. And that's that. That's about as much as it is. And Usually, they'll want you to self-report, voluntarily report into an ICE office later, but we know from statistics and data that the vast majority of them never report in. They just disappear, uh, never apply for asylum because they know they're not going to get it because they're not eligible. They just want to all stay in the country for as long as possible, working, sending money back home until one day we wake up and deport them. Uh, but they'll run and hide all the way up until that moment. When somebody is arrested for a criminal act, we are supposed to call ICE. But in the sanctuary cities, they don't call ICE. They have a ban on calling ICE. There's nothing more immoral than calling ICE on a criminal arrested in any of these cities. And so... As a result, they get released, cashless bail. We've all seen that. And they're free to go do it again and again and again because we uh, tolerate them not calling ICE. Well, this is what happened with this suspect. He was arrested in New York and, uh, and, and released. Um, so as they are then just let free to walk through the country, how do they get jobs? How are they able to legally work in the country? It, it depends. Uh, first of all, you don't have to legally work in this country. You can mow lawns. You can uh, work on construction sites. Uh, I think this particular uh, individual had a fake green card. Uh, it's so easy. There's so let me count the ways that you can work illegally and fraudulently. Some of them do get temporary work permits uh, that are renewable every two years. If you come in on the CBP-1 app, 
uh, you schedule your illegal entry, uh, then we'll give you two years of work authorization and you can renew it every two years on online for like 10 bucks uh, with no vetting whatsoever. Uh, if you apply for asylum, you could uh, if, in six months uh, qualify for a work permit that will last until you get declined five years from now or 10 years from now, in which case you just work illegally. Uh, you can work legally or illegally or fraudulently any way you want or not work at all and just go on the public welfare system and collect checks for as many years as you need checks. Incredible. Todd, let me ask you this one question. Is there any policy that the Biden administration has put forth that discourages illegal immigration into the country? Only one and only very, very recently because of the election and the polling that's going. Biden went to Mexico in around Christmas time and he sent Mayorkas and Anthony Blinken down there too. Met with the Mexican uh, president and made some kind of a secret deal because lo and behold, the Mexican president uh, began rounding up tens of thousands of migrants on, on their northern border with us and shipping them 1,500 miles south. Uh, they are policing, hardcore policing for immigrants at roadblocks throughout Mexico. They're still letting five or 6,000 a day cross, especially in Arizona and San Diego. But they have reduced it significantly in the last month and a half due to a diplomatic arrangement that uh, Biden made with uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico. Um, I don't know how long that'll last, but this is all about the election in November. Bring those numbers down. They have brought those numbers from 14,000 a day, 12,000 a day to 5,000, 6,000 a day, just with that one thing, which they could have done three years ago at any time. Hmm. Now, you've, you've talked about the asylum scam and how the whole world is, uh, is in on this. Tell our viewers and listeners about that. Well, it's sickening, really. Uh, I mean, it's just awful. Um, let's just take one of the big nationalities, Venezuelans. Um, we, they're one of the largest num numerically uh, that have crossed our border. Uh, they are all coming in under ostensible humanitarian protection grounds like asylum or CBP-1 humanitarian parole where they walk them in. But the vast, vast majority of those hundreds of thousands have not been living in Venezuela at for years. They have been living in safe third countries, prosperous with residency, with asylum, places like Colombia and Ecuador and Brazil and Argentina, Peru, 15 other countries down there in the Caribbean. And when they heard that the border was open and all you had to do was claim humanitarian protection, all of a sudden, every one of them was throwing their ID cards down on the riverbank and crossing in and saying, I'm coming directly from Venezuela, from the Maduro regime uh, and persecution. Same goes with Haitians. The vast, vast majority of Haitians that are being allowed into the country, hundreds of thousands, have been living for years and years safely in third other countries and very happily, too. Uh, they come, they saw the border was open, 
They rushed it. They threw their ID cards down on the dirt. I've got baskets filled with over here. Uh, and then came in and claimed asylum. It's all fraud. It's all bait built on lies. And nobody is doing one thing at all to enforce our asylum fraud laws. And it's mass asylum fraud going on and humanitarian protection fraud, mass assembly line fraud going on there. And nobody's doing a thing about it. Uh, Todd, very quickly, we only got about 30 seconds left, but you, you mentioned that they come over here thinking and they can just, they get checks, they get money. What benefits are illegal immigrants getting when they come into the country? Everything. A hundred percent support. Uh, a lot of this is passed through cash from the federal government to the states, which pass it to the cities. For example, in Chicago, uh, each immigrant is getting $7,000 cash a year for housing. Uh, their food is paid for, their transportation, their school, their clothing, everything is paid for for a long, long time, months and months from all different sources, uh, not wow. necessarily federal sources, but sometimes state and local. Uh, there's charities that are just constantly, um, you know, I mean, nobody is going yeah. without any, including free medical care uh, from hey, stem discharge care. We're yeah. going to have to we're going to have to leave it there. It looks like the list is far too long that we can cover in the remaining seconds we've got left. Thanks so much for joining us today, folks. Thanks for sticking with us as well. Until next time, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.